We've gathered here to worship your name. We thank you for the hymns of praise, the songs of gladness that we can sing because of the redemption that is in our Savior. And we pray now that as we turn to your word, that you would continue to teach and instruct and lift us up in the faith, feed the roots of our faith, and strengthen us for your glory this day together as we give ourselves to this task. We pray in behalf of those who know not Christ as Savior, and we pray that this would be made clear to them, and that there would be a submission to your word, and that by your Spirit you would open eyes that are blind to the truth of salvation in Christ. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you will do according to your promise in this time that we have in the Word. Steer our thoughts to what is right and good and to faithful exposition of your Word. Guide to this end. Give me strength that I don't have to this end. And may each of us as we hear this Word be sanctified. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Get a good lawyer. In our Lydica society, perhaps most of us will hear this word of counsel at some point in our lives as much as we don't want to hear it. Get a good lawyer. We will face a situation that requires legal advice from an advocate who is willing to fight for our protections under the law. In a parallel sense, when it comes to our spiritual lives, we are all well advised to get a good priest. The danger is not someone trying to sue us. The spiritual danger is God's wrath against our sin. God is a holy God who cannot justly overlook sin any more than a raging wildfire can avoid consuming a small wooden shed that stands in its way. But if God's wrath against our sinful violations of His holy law is our peril, we rejoice that God's love is demonstrated in His provision of a good priest who stands in our place and atones for our sin on God's terms. And yes, our sin, your sin, and mine. By nature, just thinking about it from one angle, by nature we yield to frustration and we yield to discontent, grumbling at the circumstances that God ordains for our lives. By nature we exert our autonomy against God and grow bitter when He he gets in the way of our plans. We grumble in our spirits with jealousy when others succeed where we fail. We envy their opportunities in the absence of our own. We grumble against the people that God puts in our lives to love us, and we grumble against the people that God puts in our lives to be loved by us. In the big picture, we grumble rather than worship. And if we ever awaken to the incapacity to rejoice 
and to the divine judgment that such sins deserve, then we sense how desperately we need a good priest. We need one to advocate for us before the throne of a holy God. One to supply what we cannot supply in our own strength. One to advocate for us. As we enter number 17, this is Israel's need. Recall that Israel's grumbling pride and rebelliousness of heart has resulted in God's disciplinary judgment against some 15,000 people. We recall Korah's rebellion against Moses and Aaron's leadership and those that went down with that family and then God incinerating 250 leaders of the nation because of their rebellion against God's chosen leaders, Moses and Aaron. Yet, truth being stranger than fiction, after all of this judgment and heartache, the nation grumbles. They complain against Moses and Aaron. It's almost unimaginable if we did not know human nature. We read in 1641 of the book of Numbers, 1641, but on the next day all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. The result of this rebellion this grumbling against God's leaders. Verse 49 of 16. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who, did not, who died in the affair of Korah. In these bitter judgments, God proved the authenticity of of Aaron's priesthood, and Aaron actively mediated between God and Israel. Perhaps the height of this text in chapter 16, verses 47 and 48, so Aaron took it as Moses said, the the censor, and ran into the midst of the assembly, and behold, the plague had already begun among the people, and he put on the incense and made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living And the plague was stopped. God's priest, God's chosen priest, standing between the dead and the living and mediating for their salvation, lest the entire nation be judged justly and rightly, deservedly. But as we enter chapter 17, God is going to make the point that he's been making in the two narratives that preceded, and that is to point to the authenticity of Aaron's priesthood. You must have God's priest, is the point that he is making. But here, in chapter 17, he takes the initiative, and he makes the point in a very positive way. First of all, we see in chapter 17 that God validates his chosen priest by miraculous sign. He validates Aaron By a miraculous sign. Chapter 17 and verse 1, we notice first of all God validating his chosen priest in this way by arranging a test to prove Aaron's priesthood. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, he spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, long sticks, rods, one for each father's house, 
from all their chiefs according to their father's houses, so 12 staffs, and write each man's name on his staff, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi, for there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. A few comments. The chief of each of Israel's 12 tribes etches his name on a long wooden stick. Now in those days, these staffs were seen as a type of, a symbol of authority. They were almost like a scepter. We see evidences of this in other texts of Scripture, but we know this historically. Conveniently, the Hebrew word for staff was the same word for tribe. So no one could miss this. The staff stood for the tribe. So each staff represented a tribe of Israel, and Aaron's name is etched onto the staff of the tribe of Levi as God demonstrates his chosen priest here. Verse 4, then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. So Moses must enter the tabernacle with these 12 staffs in hand. See an indication there of the direction into the tabernacle area. And then if we have this with this cutout to see the place, he is to enter there. He's to go behind the veil of the most holy place and deposit the staffs on the ground in front of the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark is here referred to as the testimony. That is because it contained the two tablets of the law. But over the ark, this golden box containing God's law, God's glorious presence hovered. So he's to take these staffs into the presence of God, literally, even in a physical sense. And on this unique occasion, God gives Moses leave. He gives him access to the most holy place. Verse 5, and the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you, he says to Moses. So that night, a miracle will take place. I am going to bring about a miraculous sign and demonstrate who I have chosen to be the high priest. God must choose the high priest, not us. And this, this is the concept that we are to gain from this passage. God must choose his priest. And God must establish his priesthood. This is crystal clear. God proposes to stop Israel's grumbling by this miraculous sign. Make to cease might be a little strong for the Hebrew word, which means to decrease or abate or to soothe. So the idea is, is almost like their grumbling was like a, a grass fire, and this is going to tamp it down. Certainly not going to put it to an end. It's not very long, and they're right back to grumbling. God doesn't intend that idea here. But I'm going to do something that's going to get their attention by my grace. I have related to them in judgment to make this point, and now I'm going to do so in grace through this sign, this miracle that takes place. 
Once Israel sees the sign, the raging fire of grumbling will be abated. Verse 6. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all their chiefs gave him staffs, one of each chief, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. And Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. So they do what God has called them to do. We notice then in verse 8 and following that Aaron's flourishing rod proves his election as God's priest. This miracle indeed takes place. Beginning at verse 8, some parts of Aaron's almond tree staff springs to life in buds and white blossoms and ripe almonds. Verse 8, on the next day Moses went into the tent of the testimony and behold the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. So I, th- I think all are there, the bud, the, the blossom, the almonds. God's priest was attested by this miraculous sign of life from the dead. You can't get this to happen with a dead stick. Certainly not to produce an almond overnight. Now, let's think on this for a moment because this is no random sign, no random miracle, I don't believe. I think anyone who's seeped in the understanding of the tabernacle as the Israelites were would have recognized some connections here. And, the, and that is to the lampstand. The lampstand, as we look in through the side of the tent, is positioned there. And we don't know precisely how it looked, but from the descriptions that we find in the Old Testament, it might have looked something like this graphic on the left. It was a stylized tree. It had limbs, and it bore light, and it shone that light upon the table with the bread representing the people of Israel as the light of God, as the tree of life in a sense that gives life and light. Uh, uh, zeroing in there on the top right, uh, we have, you, you see how the almond blossoms and buds are part of this lampstand. And there on the bottom, since we I don't think have a whole lot of almonds growing around here in this land, of coldness and ice, uh, th- there we go. That's what it looks like. And that's, that's what his, his stick would have produced overnight in this miraculous sign. And what is more, the almond tree was highly valued in Israel and was in a sense itself symbolic. The almond tree was the first tree to spring to life, to come to bud and blossom in the spring. So there's a lot of symbolism going on here. This first tree to bud, this white flower of the almond, symbolically represented in this stylized tree of the lampstand in the tabernacle, was a sort of first fruits of springtime and growth. It is a symbol of hope. And we, looking back, can almost see it as a symbol of the priesthood that is to come, of the harvest that is to come, of the life that is to come. So the first point here is that this hope was found in Aaron's priesthood. As you're tracking with God, as you're seeking His salvation, Israel, God says to Moses, get this point, 
This hope is found in Aaron's priesthood. And secondly, this hope is hope. For the grumbling, bitter, rebellious nation of Israel. God is coming to you in this way. He is showing them in this blossoming rod that there was hope for sinners in the ministry of God's priest. Aaron's that priest. You are my beloved people. Let's bring the two together. Moses now communicates this good news to Israel in verse 9. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord and all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. Do you see them one by one taking this dead stick? Handed it in this way, returning the same way. And then there's this one. You can take the almonds right off of it and eat them in one night. The point was made perfectly clear. Verse 10, The Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against me lest they die. Do you notice in Hebrews 9 we read of this staff in the testimony. The testimony, that is a shorthand for this Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Aaron is going to put this, or Moses is going to put this back before the ark, or as Hebrews says, in it. So we don't know where that happened, if it's going right in it here now, or if it's going inside of it later. We don't have the history on that. But he brings it back before as a testimony to this priesthood that God has chosen. Notice here the word die. I want to bring to an end the grumblings of Israel by establishing the priesthood. It's been under attack, under assault here for some time. And I'm going to make this clear so that I don't need to judge them. Notice the word die in verse 10 and then notice it again at verse 13. He who comes near the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. So at the tabernacle, death is a real possibility. In their grumbling against the true priesthood, death is a real possibility. Go to chapter 18 and verse 3. We find at the end of verse 3 of chapter 18, lest they and you die. A reference in verse 5 to the wrath of God upon Israel. And notice then at the end of verse 7, an outsider who comes near shall be put to death. We can't miss this string of emphasis upon death, upon judgment at the hand of God. It links to the earlier occasions in which God threatened to, in fact, destroy the nation. But the theme of death and judgment is also threaded into the narrative that follows, carrying us right into chapter 18. But moving to verses 12 and 13 and into chapter 18 then, we consider the summary statement on these accounts in chapter 16 and 17. Aaron's priesthood is established. And I think summary is put very well by Wenham who says, these three stories reiterate clearly and unequivocally God's choice, God's election of Aaron. He is the preeminently holy one 
Only he can draw near to God. Only he can make atonement for Israel's sin. Israel must acknowledge his unique place in the scheme of salvation by not usurping his prerogatives. A Christian, is God wasting his time here? Is he wasting our time here? Clearly not. There is a message being sent. My priest, my way, salvation. God's people respond. And notice, this is amazing grace. Notice how they respond. Aaron's flourishing rod proves his election as God's priest, and God's people respond with humbled fear. These grumblers who could grumble in the face of falling bodies, their hearts are affected as God has anticipated. And they respond in humility and in fear to what God has done. Verse 12, And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? I mean, they get the point, finally. You wonder, how do you, how do you not get the point when the earth opens up and swallows people in rebellion against God's priests? How do you not get the point when 250 men are incinerated by God's judgment? How do you not get it? But they get it here. The sprouting of Aaron's rod symbolically indicated that the other tribes were dead if they approached the sanctuary. The place God provided for them to draw near to Him in worship was a death trap. Kyle and Dellett say this miracle awakened a salutary terror in all the people so that they cried out to Moses in mortal anguish. They finally get it. And putting it into our words, what they got was, we are toast. We've got no hope here. If we're going to approach God, we're dead How can we avoid this? How can a similar rebellion not break out? We know how easy it has been in these circumstances to complain against God's priest. Certainly our children will, if not us, again. We're done. They had sought to assert their right to approach God's presence on their own terms, and now they realize that if we do so, we will share the fate of the 15,000 that have died before us. This is somber, and yet it's filled with hope. This is a hopeful moment. No longer were they grumbling and complaining about their lot in life. No longer were they asserting their right to approach God on their own terms. No longer were they competing with Aaron. They finally got it. God is holy. He has chosen the priest through whom we must approach him. We have not done so. We are doomed. Oh, the wonders that begin when we repent of sin. Oh, the grace that flows when we confess our need for rescue from God's just wrath. We perish. Do you see the linkage to death? 
Verse 11, verse 13, chapter 18, 3, 5, and 7. We are dead. Will they perish? Chapter 18, 1 through 7, is God's answer to that fear and His provision against it. God's chosen priest bears the guilt of God's people. So God validates His chosen priest by miraculous sign, and then that priest that God has chosen and has been so validated bears the guilt of God's people for them. This is what we learn in chapter 18. Verse 1, so the Lord said to Aaron, let me stop there for a moment, so the Lord said, we could read the Hebrew translation, so as now, and introducing a new emphasis that's really unrelated to what proceeds, and that's a fairly common construction in the Hebrew language. But I think in this place, the word so intentionally links chapter 17 to chapter 18. I think here the word so is in capital letters and underlined three times. Are we going to perish? On that fear, the Lord said this to Aaron, verse 1. You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. Now this is one of those tough spots where being faithful to the original text leaves us with a translation that, re- that causes lots of questions. And that's really maybe best because there's varying interpretations as to what is actually being said here. But I believe that a good case can be made. I think the strongest case is made that this verse, though not easy to interpret, is crucial to the message that God communicates to Aaron through him to the nation. And so I take it this way. You will bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. What this means, as we work it out, I think is this, that the priests of Aaron will guard the tabernacle against access to it by non-Levitical tribal members. Your task to bear this guilt, you are responsible to keep them away from the circle that they're not to cross. Again, drawing on our knowledge of the book of Leviticus and these concentric circles that protect the holiness of God. They protect the people from His holiness and they protect Him from the people's corruption. This kind of visual imagery in the whole tabernacle area. You priests now are going to step in and you're going to bear the sins of the people in this regard. I think is what he's saying. God will hold the priest responsible for any breach to his holiness by his people. And I suspect that when that word was spoken, everybody that was a priest, their skin crawled. They said, whoa. We're being called by God to protect his holiness at the cost of our lives. We are going to stand between the people and God, just like Aaron just finished doing with the whole censors and that whole rebellion thing. 
Now we're going to do that permanently and bear the sin of anyone that breaches that parameter. They must assure that no one does so. And if they do, the priests will die in their place. And then I believe that bear the iniquity connected with your priesthood takes it in a circle further. And the Aaronic priests are to make sure that the Levites do not breach into the tabernacle itself. That circle around, that protection around is to be cared for by the Aaronic priests. And if they fail, they will die in the place of the Levite who breaks God's law. Only the sons of Aaron are permitted into the tabernacle. Some of the Levites are even tasked with transporting the holy furniture inside the tabernacle, but only after it has been covered by the priests of Aaron. Covered with blankets. And verse 3 will indicate that. So God encourages Aaron. Verse 2. Verse 2, And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you before the tent of the testimony. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die. That's what you call unfair. They and you? Why us? The Levites come in and touch the furniture they're not supposed to touch. If they breach the barrier and go into the tabernacle area, that's on them. God says, no, that's on you now because you're a priest. You will bear that judgment for the Levites as they will bear the judgment of Israel should they permit anyone to breach that gap. Now, I don't think the idea is if 40,000 Israelites take spears and rush the tabernacle that they're going to all die. But the point is, one individual might make this decision. Someone might fail to understand. Someone might, in their rebellion, lead an assault. If you're able to stop them, you must stop them or you die for them. It's that serious. So, as Wenham says, the priests are like lightning rods who bear God's judgment for Israel so that Israel can approach God's presence without fear. The lightning shock of God's holiness is going to fall upon his priests so that all the people can be saved, can be spared. Verse 4, they shall join you, these Levites, priests, Aaronic priests, these Levites will join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, and there may never again be wrath, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. So this provision puts immense life and death responsibilities on the priest, but it is for the people an exquisite gift that assures their life. Verse 6, Behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel, from all the other tribes. They are a gift 
to you, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. They are assigned to the Lord as a gift to you, Israel, to carry out this service of sinners approaching God. This is my gift to you. This priestly service was a life calling in the interest of God's people. The priesthood was a gift to them. And as verse 7 says, you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood then for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil. What does that mean? That brazen altar where the sacrifices are offered all the way into the Holy of Holies one day per year, day of atonement by the high priest alone. All of that's your deal. You are assigned to that. And verse 7, you shall serve, but I give your priesthood as a gift. And I think he's saying like here, like a footnote, I believe, if I understand this right, he's saying, and any outsider who comes near you shall be put to death. Now wait a minute, weren't they supposed to die for the outsiders that came? I think here, he's talking about a non-Israelite. The non-Israelite will not be covered by the priest. The one who is not part of the people of God will not be so covered. They will die. They will suffer death if they breach that barrier. But we see here that the priesthood is a gift. And let me say, as we think back on it, it would be easy to understand, the priest did not live a normal life. The entrepreneurial opportunities that others possessed were denied to them. They had to attend God's tabernacle. They were not as free to travel. They were not as free to choose where to live within the community. They lived their days always in the public eye. There was times of rest, but their service was with the people and many times with the masses of them. While others in the camp transported their families' belongings, it's time for Israel to move. The glory cloud moves. Everybody grabs their stuff. Pull down the tent. Bring your, all your stuff from out of the tent as a family and let's march on where God's leading us. The Levites had more work to do. They had their own furniture to take, whatever that was, as limited as it was, but they had their own stuff to carry like everybody else, and they had to carry God's furniture. Which I think, think about it, means that there was a lot of weight that fell on their families, their wives and their children, to carry on extra responsibilities. One might think about this and say, no thanks, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. I don't want to be a Levite. Well, for most of the Israelites, there was no opportunity to be one, no need to be one. But for the Levites, it was a calling from God to serve His people. It was a high calling, it was a privileged calling, and it was a very clear and objective call. Tiring, restrictive, even a dangerous privilege. But it was a privilege nonetheless. It was a gift. Now the pastoral office today is not the priestly office. They are not the same. And yet I think there are certainly some applications, some points of connection. 
and I have offered this counsel through many years to young men and their wives who are seeking to enter into ministry, to serve as elders in a church, to give themselves perhaps to seminary training. And I've said many times, you're not going to live a normal life. There's going to be some heavy restrictions. But never forget that it is a gift to serve God's people. It's a tiring, restrictive, difficult, challenging, sometimes dangerous gift. But it is always a gift. Now, all of this was written for our instruction. I think even pastorally here we can see some connections that that at least apply in some sense to the work of the church and the people of God. But let me stress again, this is no ancient text that is irrelevant to us. It's no museum piece to be viewed with sleepy eyes and the distracting anticipation of lunch. It's not like that. No, God creates patterns in this text, and he carves out redemptive channels that point us to the ultimate truth. We would not be prepared to understand priesthood if we didn't have this history to draw upon. God is pointing us, steering us, showing us where his salvation plan is is going. We learn here very clearly, do we not, that you must have a good priest. You must have the right priest. Only God can choose that priest, and today there is only one such priest we come to know in the New Testament. Aaron was not a special man who earned this calling by God to the priesthood. Aaron's done a lot to mess up. He's broken God's law repeatedly through our understanding of this history. It's not because he was some special person. It was the priesthood that God establishes here that's important. Not the man. Aaron was chosen by God's sovereign election for a specific role in God's saving plan. And no one was going to mess with that plan. God made it clear that the salvation of my people depends upon this priesthood. But that role of Aaron merely pointed forward to the final high priest who was special. Who was chosen for his sinless life. We learn in Numbers 16 through 18 that we cannot mess with God's sovereign plan. We must approach him on his terms according to his plan of salvation. And that plan prefigured by the Old Testament priesthood was fulfilled in the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the superior high priest. Not of the order of Aaron, but of the order of Melchizedek, we learn in Hebrews 7. He has become a priest, Jesus, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. That was the case. Jesus couldn't be anything because no one could figure out that descent ahead of time. It's not the basis of why he's a priest, not on the basis of his being born into the line of Aaron, but by the power of an indestructible life. He's beyond that, 
and has no beginning and no end, for it's witnessed of him that you are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek, who has no genealogy in Scripture, using that moving forward of Christ ultimately fulfilled as one with no genealogy ultimately. He does as a man, but after the order of Melchizedek, he serves as God's chosen priest. He is superior as a high priest because he did not simply enter an earthly tent in order to repeatedly present the blood of animals for the forgiveness of sin. But as Hebrews 10 says, every priest standing daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. These ironic priests. But, verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was done. Sitting down at the right hand of God means you don't stand as a priest in continual sacrifice. One sacrifice, done. Now what's he doing? Not sacrificing, not being sacrificed. He's waiting. Waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's finished. And he died on the cross He spoke this out. It is finished. The plan is fulfilled. Jesus then, as the mediator of a new covenant, stood in our place and bore the punishment of God's wrath against us. As Peter writes, for Christ suffered once for sins. Once. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. God attested to Christ's priesthood by many miracles, but the miracle by which Christ was attested as God's ultimate sacrifice and high priest was what? It was His resurrection from the dead. He is now the first fruits of those who will rise from the dead. To this, the almond blossoms and the almond fruit pointed The stick that bore life, that came from death to life. The almond tree of life is in bloom, Christian. The fragrance of life hovers over us today by virtue of Christ's resurrection conquest. As it were, that rugged cross has sprouted. All other priesthoods are now a farce. They merely pave the way to death by bypassing the fully sufficient work of Christ. They go about their daily duties as priests under some regimen, under some set of rules, and they turn their back on the high priest, Jesus Christ, who made the final sacrifice for sins. So we can say, secondly, that trusting in the substitutionary death of Jesus, trusting in the death He suffered in our place, trusting in His vicarious resurrection, that is, His resurrection, had something to do with us. That draws us into the new covenant 
with God by which we may enter directly into His presence. This is the priesthood. This is the high priest. This is the final sacrifice. And now you can walk into the Holy of Holies. This we read in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There is a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that his death split from top to bottom. And we can now declare going into that presence there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everything that Aaron pointed to in his priesthood, everything that Moses pointed to in his leadership of God's people, the restrictions around that tabernacle, all of that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who now who now takes us as our representative, as our good priest, into the throne room of God. Such a salvation kills grumbling. Such a salvation changes our attitudes that separate our spirit from the living God and living to glorify His name. We now enter into His presence by prayer. We enter into His presence as His people assemble together, rejoicing in what He has done, celebrating the sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. If you do not... If you do not have a good priest, if you do not have the good priest, I plead with you to come to Christ today. And I know something about you as I know about my own heart and as we all know about you, and that is that there's all kinds of grumbling going on in your spirit. There's things that don't make you happy. There's a frustration there that you can't make go away. The things that you think will satisfy turn out not to satisfy whatsoever. They bite you as hard as anything else has bit you. What you need is a good priest to cleanse your soul and conscience. And this is God's provision. This is His priest. This is His way in. And this is His way all the way in. May we who know Him as Savior exercise this privilege in prayer and faithfulness to Him as a church. Let's pray. We are so grateful, Lord. We 
lack words. To think of what Christ has done for us. To think of the access that we have to you. The boldness to cry out. There is no condemnation to we who are in Christ Jesus. We can hardly fathom the wonder of these truths. But I pray that they deepen us and draw us in. And that we would take the privilege to pray. To come into your presence. And indeed to sense that we walk there every day in your holy presence. We praise you for our Savior, and we pray that all would look to Him in salvation now, that we would seek in Him sanctifying grace, that we would walk in fellowship and faithfulness. And for those that are able now to take these thoughts in, this, in our gatherings this afternoon, I pray that in our small groups we will be able to rejoice in Christ crucified and risen, give us strength to apply and to grow together as we seek to prosper in our faith. For those who know not Jesus, bring them to that light, we pray, through Christ. Amen. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost.